26 years ago, in June of 1995, Captain Scott O'Grady of the United States Air Force was shot down over Bosnia as NATO was attempting to enforce a no-fly zone during the Bosnian War. Captain O'Grady was able to eject from his plane and get himself hidden on the ground before the Bosnian Serbs were able to find him, and they did, though, get very close, coming within feet at times of where he was hidden, and he was on the ground for six days before the Marines came in and brought him out, and during that six days, he survived on bugs and grass and leaves. And in his account of the event, Captain O'Grady describes the time that he was able to break out his flexi-pack of water, which he said was his first liquid in 17 hours. He said that that first sip of water was better than the freshest orange juice. Now, water has an amazing effect on you, especially when you haven't had any for quite a while. So think with me. When was the last time that you were really thirsty and you were satisfied with a drink of cold, refreshing water? Maybe you were out mowing the lawn or doing some yard work on a hot summer day and you got that glass of ice water. It was just what you needed. Now this morning we're turning our attention to John chapter 4 where Jesus encounters a woman who came to a well looking for water. And as important as water is, Jesus offers her something that is even more refreshing and even more essential to her well-being. So let's look to the text. John chapter 4 will be beginning in verse 1 and we'll read down through verse 26. John chapter 1 beginning excuse me, John chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, "Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty 
nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now these verses that we have just read are full of instructions. The main thrust of the passage is on this wise and winsome evangelistic encounter that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman. Nevertheless, there are many things that we learn here almost incidentally as the narrative unfolds. Now John first sets the stage for what happens here by telling us in the first three verses that Jesus had left Judea and was headed back to Galilee. And he gives us the reason for this. The reason why Jesus left Judea was that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist was. It seems that the Pharisees were kind of keeping tabs on both the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. And so it seems that they were doing this because they were, they were getting a little bit nervous. You've got this prophet, preacher, Named John, who is out there in the wilderness making some waves. He's not claiming to be the Christ, and so maybe, maybe this whole thing will just blow over. But then again, John had been saying that there was someone who was coming after him. And now there's a man who has come, in fact, on the scene after John. And this man is gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is saying, yeah, this, is, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher place than me because he was before me. And so they're, they're probably getting a little bit nervous about what they're seeing, both in the ministry of John and in the ministry of Jesus. And it's, it's interesting here that when Jesus finds out, that the Pharisees find out that he's gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, when they find out that he's having a successful ministry and Jesus knows about it, Jesus is willing to, to get on out of there, to get back from Judea into Galilee seems that if he had remained there where he was, things might have, might have come to a head between Christ and the Pharisees before the appointed time. And before we move on, though, we need to note here something quite important about the baptism of Jesus that is brought to light there in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John. And then verse 2 follows up with a parenthetical note about this baptism. Though the baptism is attributed to Christ, that Jesus is gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, nevertheless it is said that it was not 
actually Jesus himself who was performing the baptism, but his disciples. And the point I think that we should glean from this is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that Jesus himself was not the one who was baptizing. Jesus had authorized the disciples to baptize. They were baptizing the action in his name and at his command. And for all we know, Judas Iscariot could have been one of those disciples who was there baptizing for Christ at this point in his ministry. And if he was, it doesn't matter that those who were baptized were baptized by Judas instead of being baptized by Peter. As one theologian wisely expressed it, I believe not in the minister by whom I am baptized, but in Christ, who alone justifies the sinner and can forgive guilt. The baptism is ultimately from Christ. The one who is performing the baptism is an instrument in Christ's hand. And so... Christ, apparently wishing to avoid this conflict with the Pharisees at this time, leaves Judea, goes back to Galilee. Shortest way to get there is through Samaria. And so he goes through Samaria and comes to this town called Sychar. And this is in the vicinity, at least, if not the actual town uh, that's referred to in Genesis as Shechem. Jacob's well, as we see in the text, is there. Jesus and his disciples get there at the sixth hour, which is noon, and Jesus sits down by the well. Now, why does he sit down? He sits down because he is wearied from his journey. And we see in this the the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. John, in his gospel, has already told us about the, the divinity of Christ, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then he tells us, chapter 1, again, that the Word became flesh. And we see here some of the implications of that. We see in verse 6 some of what it practically means that the Word became flesh. When Jesus takes a journey in the heat of the day, he gets tired, like anybody else would. He is really and truly a man, really and truly human, really like us in all ways except for sin. And as a man, he gets hungry, he gets tired, he is able to die. And praise God that Jesus was able to die. He died for us. It's essential to our salvation that Christ was and is and always will be a man. And it is in this condition, as the Son of God and Son of Man, as the Word made flesh, that he's sitting there by this well, wearied, thirsty, probably also hungry since the disciples went into town to buy bread, and... He's not at all appearing to be the Messiah, not at all appearing to be God. It is in this condition that our Lord enters into this remarkable exchange with what might seem like the most unlikely of people. And as we consider this exchange between Jesus and this Samaritan woman, we'll consider it under three parts. First, recognize the difference between the water of this world and the living water. The difference between the water of this world and the living water. Second, imitate Jesus in evangelism. And third, worship God in spirit and truth. So first, the difference between the water of this world and the living water. Second, imitate Jesus in evangelism. And third, worship God in spirit and truth. And so we don't know this woman's name, but we do know that she was a woman, that she was from Samaria, that she came to this well, And that Jesus breaks all social convention in asking her for a drink of water. 
The Jews and Samaritans, as we find in this text, didn't get along well at all. The woman is obviously stunned by this request. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And then comes the statement, uh, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. A more literal rendering of the word seems to indicate that Jews and Gentiles, uh, Jews and Samaritans don't use the same dishes. And so how in the world can Jesus be asking this woman for a drink if they're not supposed to be associating with one another or even sharing the same dishes? Because Jesus, if he receives a drink from this woman, would of necessity be sharing a dish with this woman. But Jesus is willing to break with social custom in order to deliver the living water to the thirsty soul of this woman. He's willing to, as it were, hook her into the conversation using some metaphorical language Language that she doesn't even fully understand. And so he says, if you, would, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, if she had really known about the gift of God's grace and, and who it was who was actually sitting there on that well, then she would have been asking him for water. Would have been asking for a different kind of water. Now, we should note that in the ancient world, living water referred to, to running or flowing water, like in a stream. And so this, this terminology of living water is not completely foreign to this woman as it would be foreign to kind of our broader culture. Now, we as those familiar with the Bible have heard of living water, but, but by and large, our culture does not use this phrase, living water. But, but it would have, been, would have been known to this woman. And we should also note that living water has... A biblical pedigree, as it were, as well. And so we're told in Jeremiah 2.13 that the Lord had said to Israel, My people committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The Old Testament prophets Zechariah, as we heard in our Old Testament reading, and Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 47.9, looked forward to a day when living water would come flowing out of Jerusalem. And certainly our Lord Jesus, when he speaks of living water, is not speaking of a flowing stream of physical water, but of something much more profound, something much more satisfying, something much more lasting. But this, this woman, from all appearance, has no idea what Jesus is talking about. She starts talking to him about the fact that he doesn't have a bucket and a rope with which to draw water, and that this well that Jacob dug for them is deep. And so she says to him, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? We shouldn't be surprised at first that this woman had no clue what Jesus was talking about. The truth was that Jesus was often misunderstood, even by his disciples. Jesus has a tendency of using metaphorical language and people mistake him for, for speaking literally. Sometimes Jesus speaks literally and they mistake him for speaking metaphorically. We should not be surprised that when his own disciples didn't always grasp what he was saying, that surely this Samaritan woman did not grasp what he was saying. We shouldn't be surprised that she's confused by his figure of speech, nor should we be surprised that Jesus would use such terms as, as living water. In an attempt to, to clarify and to press the conversation further, then Jesus draws a contrast between the water there in Jacob's well and the water that he gives. So he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now there's a great enough difference between these these two types of water. But at the same time, there's enough similarity that a comparison may be made. The water there from Jacob's well is similar to the living water that's found in Christ and that both give life. The one gives physical life, the other gives spiritual life. They're both refreshing. The one from the well refreshes weary bodies that are worn out by work and travel and the heat of the day. The other refreshes weary souls, souls that have sought after anything and everything else to satisfy their desire but have only been made more thirsty and more desperate in the search. Likewise, these waters are similar in that there's a cleansing element in them. The water from Jacob's well could wash dirty bodies and make them clean. The living water from the Lord Jesus Christ also has the unique ability to cleanse filthy souls, and nothing else can do that. The Lord had spoken through Ezekiel of this kind of cleansing, Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ordinances, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now it's interesting there that in Ezekiel's prophecy, the the cleansing water goes hand in hand with the new heart that the Lord gives by putting his spirit into the hearts of the people. All spiritual blessing is tied in there together. This this water, this, this cleansing, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the renewal of the hearts of believers. And so there's, there's certainly some, some overlap between this natural water and what our Lord speaks of in talking about living water. Enough that a comparison can be made, but it's the pronounced difference between the living water and the water of Jacob's well that Jesus draws the woman's attention to there in verses 13 and 14. If you drink water from this well, you're going to get thirsty again. We, we know this from experience. I love to drink the water from my parents' well back in Indiana. There's, there's something about the precise mixture of, of minerals in that well or something that it's, it's, like, it's like no other. You can, you can taste it, and it tastes like being home. And when I go home, I often will you know, get a glass of water, and I'll kind of, kind of carry it around with me to different rooms as I go sometimes. And it's great, but you get thirsty again. We all know how this works. And we might go so far as to say that this statement from Jesus about the well there in Sychar is also applicable to to every kind of pleasure, every kind of fix, every kind of comfort, every kind of so-called hope that this world offers to us. It's because it, it doesn't last. Whatever this world offers to you may seem to help for a little while, but you just get thirsty again. Try to fill up on it, whatever it is, but it fails to deliver what it seems to be promising that it is able to deliver. But the gift of God, of this living water through Jesus Christ, is different. Jesus says that the one who drinks the water that he gives will never thirst. Drink the water, you never get thirsty again. Now, in saying this, I don't think we should 
Suppose that Jesus is saying that everyone who's received living water from him never will feel any kind of spiritual want again. Because Christians do have times where we strongly desire a closer walk and fellowship with the Lord, where we, we feel spiritually hungry, as it were. Sometimes we feel that we've lost the closeness or the fellowship of our walk with the Lord due to some sin or due to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Emotions go up and go down. We become happy because of some circumstances. We become sad due to other circumstances. But when Jesus says that those who receive this living water will never thirst again, this seems to be in reference to the the abiding nature of Christ's gift. The Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer is a perpetually running stream. The, The grace and mercy and peace that come to us as believers in Christ are such that they never run out. They never run dry. They are sufficient for all time and for eternity. And so recognizing this, the, the great difference between the natural water of the world and the living water that is the gift of God through Jesus Christ. The water of the world, whether it's physical water that we drink when we're thirsty, or whether it be the pleasures and the comforts and the promises of the world, whatever it is, it's ultimately going to be insufficient for you. You'll partake of it when you feel the need, but you will thirst again. That's the way that works. But the one who drinks the living water given by Christ will have all of their spiritual thirsts quenched. Christ spoke elsewhere of this same thing when he speaks about the gift of the Holy Spirit in John seven thirty-seven and 38, where he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then... John 7.39, which directly follows, explicitly states that in saying this, Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit. This is the, the gift of the Holy Spirit creates this phenomenon in the heart of believers such that we, we drink and from our innermost being flow these rivers of living water. We have this source within us, not because of us, but because of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And that is the contrast. A consumption of this world's water leaves you thirsty. And ultimately, leaves you in ruins, it leaves you in your sins. And isn't that true? Don't all of us know by experience, some way or another? We seek after the things of this world, which seem to be promising fulfillment, and they leave us empty. But, in the preaching of the gospel, we have for us the living waters that are offered to us in Jesus' name. All that we have to do is see our need and go to Jesus and ask for it. This is what the prophets of old had said. We read together those wonderful words of Isaiah 55 earlier this morning. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. The Word of God tells us to come to the waters and buy without money, without price. It's offered freely to us. Partake of the good things that are abundantly provided by Christ. This is the call of the book of Revelation as well. After describing in graphic terms the judgment that is coming upon the world, the safety of the people of God and the joy of the redeemed and their eternal habitations in the new heavens and the new earth, right near the end of the book, Revelation twenty-two seventeen, we read these wonderful words, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come.
And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Charles Spurgeon once expounded wonderfully on those words and the, the freeness of this offer to come and drink. And he said, you're standing by the fountain outside there and the water is flowing and you're willing to drink and you're picked out of the crowd who is standing around and you are specially invited by the person who built the fountain. He says, here is a special invitation for you. You are willing, come and drink. This person said, what would you do if you were dying of thirst? Would you just put down your lips and drink? He said, soul, do that now. Believe that Jesus Christ is able to save you now. This is the the living water that is yours for the asking. Jesus said to this woman, if she knew the gift of God, and if she knew who it was who was asking her for a drink, she would have turned the tables and asked him a question. She would have asked him, and he would have given her living water. Jesus said that if she asked, it would have been given to you. And it's true the same way this morning for all of us. For any who will come to Christ and ask for the living water, it will be his. And so this this woman in our passage thought this living water was a good idea. So she asked Jesus for it. Right? That's how the conversation progresses. She she hears about this. Wow, this must be this must be a pretty good idea. How much she actually understood of what this offer involved is pretty questionable, but nevertheless she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And notice, notice in the flow of the conversation that after this point, all of the figurative language drops out. Jesus begins speaking to her more forthrightly in clear language. And the first thing that he says to her after she asked for living water then leads to a conviction of sin. And so let's watch and learn here as Christ proclaims the good news. And this is our second point in consideration of this passage, which is imitate Jesus in evangelism. And so Jesus, as we, as we see in the Gospels, is an expert at seizing the moment and turning day-to-day encounters with people involving relatively mundane things into opportunities to evangelize and to opportunities to, to turn the conversation from these physical mundane things to spiritual and eternal realities. So there he is. He's worn out from his journey in the midday sun. This woman comes along, and he's able to, to draw her into conversation about, about physical water and about living water. And he puts himself at her mercy, in a way, by asking a favor from her. He's audacious enough in doing this. He's a Jewish man. She's a Samaritan woman. And even with that audacity of breaking social custom, he's incredibly winsome as He started with a simple quest for water and then turned this mundane, everyday encounter into a life-changing event for this this woman. And so, let's think about it. As soon as this woman had showed up, Jesus would have been completely speaking the truth if he had just said to her, Woman, I know that you are a miserable sinner. I know that you are living right now in an immoral relationship. I'm the Son of God. I've come to save sinners. Will you believe in me and be saved? All of that would have been completely true. But Jesus didn't take that approach, did he? He gained a hearing with this woman. We could say that he he piqued her interest. 
She's willing to listen to him, willing to engage in conversation and dialogue with him. J.C. Ryle pointed out in this connection, and he said that the first step to take with a careless sinner after his attention has been arrested is to produce on his mind the impression that we can tell him something of his advantage within his reach. There is a certain vagueness in our Lord's words which exhibit his consummate wisdom. A systematic statement of doctrinal truth would have been thrown away at this stage of the woman's feeling. The general and figurative language which our Lord employed was exactly calculated to rouse her imagination and to lead her on to further inquiry. That's exactly what the woman does. She inquires further. And finally, she gets to the point where she's asking for this living water and whether or not she knew what she was asking for, Jesus proceeds to give it to her. And he begins with these words that are designed to convict her of sin. She says, he says to her, go call your husband and come here. Now certainly, Jesus has the advantage on us in this regard. There are certain aspects of imitating Jesus in evangelism that we should try. There are certain aspects of imitating Jesus in evangelism that we should not try. You know the old warning, don't try this at home. There's, there's some of that going on here. Jesus has the advantage on us. He could say such a thing to this woman and know that his words would lead to a conviction of sin because, as we found back at the end of chapter 2, he knew what was in man. Certainly Jesus has the advantage on us. But nevertheless, we can imitate him by seeking to probe gently into the lives of those who are willing to give the gospel a hearing. And we see a further example of Christ's pattern of evangelism in his, his gentleness in what follows. The woman answers him that she has no husband. And even though she had only told half of the story, nevertheless, Jesus still agrees with her. He said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. And then he follows up and gives the rest of the story. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Again, if I can borrow the words of Ryle, who's very helpful on this passage, he said, Kindness of manner like this will always be found a most important point in dealing with the ungodly. Scolding and sharp rebuke, however well deserved, have a tendency to harden and shut up hearts and to make people bolt their doors. Kindness, on the other hand, wins, softens, conciliates, and disarms prejudice. Jesus could have responded to this woman after she said, I have no husband. He could have said, tell me the whole truth and not have truths, you wicked woman. I know you've had five husbands and you're not even married to the man you have now. If you don't repent of this wickedness, you'll be condemned under the wrath of God. Again, all of that would have been completely true. But Jesus is concerned about more than simply getting the soundbite of the gospel over the airwaves to this woman. He wants to share the good news with her, but not in a way that simply says, there, I've shared the gospel with you. If you don't like it and don't believe it, that's your problem. I've done my duty. I've washed my hands of your blood. I've washed my hands of your soul if you refuse to repent. That's not the way Jesus acted here at all. Unfortunately, can't sometimes our evangelism degenerate to the point where that's basically our attitude. We know that we're supposed to share the gospel with others, but can't our attitude sometimes degenerate to the point where we have lost all compassion for the souls to whom we are supposed to be ministering, and we're just concerned about getting the message out there there it is, take it or leave it, let it fall, and move on. And thanks be to God that Christ is not like us in that. He's not only concerned about conveying the message, he's also concerned about the person. He's concerned about her, that there's a real person in front of him, made in the image of God, who has a real soul, 
a real soul that will one day spend eternity in a real place, either heaven or hell. And Jesus is concerned about delivering the message, but that's not his only concern. He wants to see the person in front of him and to win her. We find in Jesus' kind gentleness with this woman that that statement of John 3.17 borne out that God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And so be encouraged today by the perfect patience of Jesus. That's how Paul describes the, the patience of Christ in 1 Timothy 1.16 and speaking of his own experience as the chief of sinners. He said that Christ showed him his perfect patience. And we see Jesus' perfect patience here as well with this woman. And be encouraged by Jesus' kindness toward sinners. We see it pictured so clearly for us here. None of us should despair of being too wicked to be saved by Christ. Christ calls us, whoever we are, to come to him and drink of the living water. Just look at the woman he is ministering to here. And if you've already received the the living water by trusting in Christ, then be encouraged once again at how refreshing it is to be in the service of such a Lord and Savior as our Jesus Christ is. He's so kind, so gentle. He's truthful, powerful, mighty to save, but yet he's also kind and gentle. And as you take this refreshing view of who our Lord is, then learn from his example. He's ready to speak the gospel on all occasions with a heart full of compassion and a desire to win those to whom he spoke. His mouth spoke gracious and gentle words, even when those words were intended to bring a conviction of sin. He was still gracious, gentle, and kind in doing it. And so may God grant to us such a love for souls that we are ready and anxious to speak to others about Christ, not simply because we're supposed to, which we are supposed to, but also because we actually love the people in front of us. This is not always our natural tendency. At least it's not always mine. And so may God capture our hearts again with a fresh vision of the glory of Christ and his kindness and gentleness. And may God also capture our hearts with a longing for souls so that we long to speak to them in a wise, truthful, and winsome way and imitate Jesus, therefore, in our evangelism. Now, as Christ's conversation with this woman proceeds, she recognizes, after Jesus tells her about her marital history, she recognizes there that she's not dealing with just anybody. She's dealing with someone who has extraordinary knowledge because Christ accurately spoke to her about the ins and outs of her personal life. She knows that she's dealing with a prophet. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she kind of shifts the conversation a little bit away from herself to the question that was a source of contention between the Jews and Samaritans as to where worship ought to be taking place. So she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Now some have thought that maybe she's simply trying to evade the issue of her personal life and her sins. That's certainly possible, but it's also possible that now, now that she has a prophet, someone who has some knowledge in front of her, maybe she can get to the bottom of this question that divides the Jews and Samaritans. This is someone who knows some things, and so why not talk to him about this hot topic 
of disagreement about where worship should be. She says there that, that our fathers worshipped on this mountain. It's a reference to, to Mount Gerizim, which is near the village of Sakar. And during the days of the Persian Empire, the Samaritans had, had built a temple there where they, where they worshipped. And this had later been, uh, been destroyed by the Jews. But the Samaritans still continued to regard Mount Gerizim as the place where worship should take place. And being confronted with this question, Jesus, strictly speaking, sidesteps the question. He doesn't come right out and say that the Samaritans should be coming to Jerusalem. He does clearly speak to the deficiency of Samaritan worship. But he also uses this question to point the conversation to himself. And also the massive shift that attends religious worship now that Christ has come. While Jesus does point out that... Samaritans don't know what they are worshiping, as opposed to the Jews who knew the God whom they were worshiping. And he does point out that salvation does come from the Jews. Yet, nevertheless, he answers the question in such a way as to point to even the temporary nature of the legitimate worship in Jerusalem. He says, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now Jesus uses this language here about an hour coming, and an hour coming, and now is, to speak about the massive shift that now comes with him on the scene. Though the Jews were correct in worshiping in Jerusalem at that time, Jesus says that now the true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and truth. And this means that that ultimately with the coming of Christ, the where of worship is no longer going to be a decisive factor. In the Old Testament times, it was clearly a decisive factor. You've got a legitimate temple in Jerusalem. You've got an illegitimate temple in Mount Gerizim. But now with the coming of Christ, the where of worship is no longer a decisive factor. In John chapter 2, Jesus had identified himself as the the true temple. The decisive factor for worship then is that it be done in spirit and in truth. And ultimately, this means that we worship with all of our hearts from a heart that has been opened by the Holy Spirit to see the truth of God in Jesus Christ. We understand that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah who came into the world just as he claims here in verse 26. We worship in spirit because our hearts have been opened. We worship in truth because we understand that all of God's promises find their fulfillment in Christ, that in Christ all of God's promises are yes and amen, that Christ is the truth. We worship in spirit and truth because the Holy Spirit has given us spiritual life, raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life, And it's now conforming our hearts to the image of Christ. We worship in spirit and truth because the Spirit of God has made our hearts submissive to the Word of God so that now we worship God in accordance with His commandments. And Jesus says that these are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. And indeed, God has always sought this kind of worshipers. Even in the Old Testament, the Lord had no place for those who honored Him with their mouths but had hearts that were still far away from him. So don't suppose that God is pleased or that God was pleased once upon a time in the Old Testament 
with a show of religious formality because he never has been. Religious formality has always been a possibility for those who claim to worship God. It is possible for a man in the time of Christ to show up at the synagogue dressed appropriately, take part in the prayers of the synagogue and listen to the scriptures being read, but to just be doing it because that's what a good Jewish man was supposed to be doing. Likewise, it's possible for us today to participate in the life of the church, public worship, or even perform our private devotions out of habit and duty with no love toward God and no thought toward honoring Him. The true worshipers of God, however, are different. They worship in spirit and truth. Their hearts are drawn to Him because He's been so kind to them, because He has expressed that kindness in the sending of His Son into the world. And thus, it is through Christ that we understand the Father, because Christ is the one who explains the Father to us. It is through Christ that we receive the the gift of God, the the grace of the gospel. It's through Christ that we receive the promised Holy Spirit. Christ is the one who gives us this living water that can satisfy our thirsty souls. Christ is the one who shows us the love of God and the gentleness of God towards sinners. We see all of these things here in this chapter. And the only reasonable thing to do in light of all this, then, is to worship God with all of our hearts, in spirit and in truth. We read in verse 24 that God is spirit, which is to say that God is is immaterial. He doesn't have a body the way that we do. God's omnipresent. He's all-seeing, all-knowing. And Jesus pointed to the time in connection with his coming when the true worshipers would worship in spirit and truth, And this means that their worship does not have to be bound to a particular place because God himself is not bound to a particular place. God is spirit and not flesh. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And our worship of God can take place at any place so long as it is done in spirit and in truth. And Jesus gives this reply to the the woman's statement about the religious difference between Jews and Samaritans. And then the woman, reflecting upon these things, expresses her confidence that the Messiah is coming and that the Messiah would explain everything to them. Even as a Samaritan, she had this messianic hope. She knew that the Messiah was coming. She knew that the Messiah would be a teacher, that he would explain truth to them when he came. As great as her sinfulness was, she still had some understanding of of true doctrine, that there was a Messiah coming that he would teach them when he came. And Jesus takes this opportunity to point blank tell her who he was. Those simple words, I who speak to you am he. Can you imagine what must have flooded her mind and what must have flooded her emotions at that point? Maybe it was fear, maybe it was hope, maybe it was excitement. Maybe it was embarrassment. Maybe some combination or something else. We don't know for sure. She had already granted that he was a prophet because of, her, because of Christ's unique insight into her life. The subsequent narrative here in chapter 4 tells of how she departed from there and spoke to the men of her village about Jesus, wondering if he might not be the Christ. Jesus tells her straight up who he is, that he is the Christ Now, if she was only able to put all of the pieces together, she might have begun to understand the earlier conversation that they had had about living water, that Jesus has this living water, and that this water that he gives will become 
a spring welling up to eternal life, that this water was hers for the asking. If she understood who he was, she would have asked. And the same is true for us today. If we understand who Christ is, we ought to ask him for the living water. For those of you who have never trusted in Christ, please understand that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God who came into the world. He offers eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and new life with God. This is the very thing, the very thing that your soul desperately needs. Apart from Christ, your soul is shriveled and thirsty and doomed to die. But Christ offers the only thing that will satisfy your soul. And so come to Christ and drink. And for those of you who are His, recognize afresh in Christ the great gift that you have already received. You have drank of this water that becomes in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. And again, this speaks to the abiding nature of Christ's gift within us. The Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer is a perpetually running stream. It never runs dry. The grace and mercy and peace that has come to the believer through Christ never run out. They are sufficient for all time and forever, for all eternity. And so go back again. Go back to the well, back to the stream. Be reminded that the grace of Christ which you have tasted in salvation is sufficient for whatever your needs may be. I don't know what all of your needs are this morning. I know some of them, but certainly not all of them. Recognize that Christ is the answer for whatever you're facing this morning. Walk by the Spirit from day to day. It's by the Spirit that we're strengthened with power in our inner man, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And so may Christ strengthen us so that knowing his love, we ourselves are filled with all the fullness of God and are therefore equipped and strengthened to walk faithfully with our Lord through the good times and through the bad. Let's pray.